looking at the idea of the man of lawlessness or what is more commonly referred to as the Antichrist. There you go. And because it's in 2 Thessalonians, so Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonia, the Thessalonians, in his first letter, and he mentioned the second coming, he explained a lot about the second coming, and obviously there were some people who had been thinking or had been taught or told by others that, hey, Jesus already returned and you've missed out. So he wrote to them very clearly and said, hey, no, he's going to come very dramatically and very obviously, you're not going to miss out, you'll know when it happens, basically. And by the way, then he writes in his second letter that uh, there is going to be some things happening before Jesus comes that it will be very dramatic and very obvious and those two things we'll look at today. So that's why he's writing this. So, and it is possible that the lack of work, that uh, the Thessalonians, some of them were becoming lazy and not working, it, it is quite possible that some of them got the idea, well, Jesus is coming soon, we don't need to work. And he corrects that as well. So let's look at the Antichrist. You don't hear many sermons on this, and uh, every now and again you do, and this is one of those Sundays. It's in the Bible, and he talks a lot about it in Thessalonians chapter 2, so I think it's worth looking at. And, you know, we, it may be something we experience. Let's, let's be frank about that. It may be something that we live through, and uh, this, this coming of the lawless one. So uh, it's good to be prepared. Who is the Antichrist? Well, over the years people have thought, well, Nero was the Antichrist or various popes, or Hitler, Putin, one of the latest ones. Uh, but I've seen, as I looked online, there all sorts of people uh, identified as being the Antichrist from time to time. Uh, I've seen pictures of Barack Obama being the Antichrist, George Bush being the Antichrist, and Donald Trump being the Antichrist. So it seems like whoever you don't like becomes the Antichrist, right? Uh, so obviously they're all wrong, because what we see here is that the Antichrist's behaviour will be so different from every other human being, even, you know, someone, the epitome of evil, Adolf Hitler, who has sort of become that figure, um, is far, far worse than him in the sense of his power and his worldwide influence, that you won't be able to, he'll be so much head and shoulders worse or better or whatever than any person we've ever seen. There's be no mistaking you know, oh, maybe Mao Zedong or maybe... So. No, this one will be so different. Um, and Antichrist really meaning in place of Jesus. So really, it's someone with like that type of power, divine power motivated by Satan himself. So you're not going to be confused. Let's see if this... If I can get this. Yeah, green light's on. Click. On, click, not happening. Okay, try again, click, no. All right, so this, try now. Yeah, there we go. So the outline, these are the things that we'll be looking at in this passage. So the timing of the Antichrist, when he'll be coming, how he'll be worshipped, uh, and the restraint, there's something holding him back at the moment. 
that the fact that there are many like little antichrists throughout church history and the power of the antichrist, the uh, supernatural power and ability he'll have and then his final end, the destruction. They are the big issues we'll be looking at. So this passage itself raises some issues, some questions that aren't really answered that well by Paul. Like he indicates that he'd already said all these things to the Thessalonians so that there's a lot of you know, background information that they knew that Paul had taught them that he doesn't go into a lot of detail with us. He mentions them, but they sort of knew, oh yeah, that's what Paul said when he was here a few months ago, but not to us. So what is the rebellion? What is this rebellion that's going to come? You know, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So what is the rebellion? Who is the man of lawlessness? What is the temple that he sits in? And what or who is restraining him coming in verse 6? And what is the mystery of lawlessness? What does that mean? There are a lot of issues that come up, which hopefully I'll be able to explain. Now, when we look at this Antichrist figure, we have some supporting texts. What that means is, maybe I clicked too many times, let's go. We have some supporting texts. So what that means is the information and the teaching in 2 Thessalonians about the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is very, um, very detailed and very plain. There's no you know, like, although I've said there are things like what is the temple, we, we don't quite understand that. But the description of what he's going to do is very clear. Now, and some of his characteristics are very clear. So we, we start with the, the passages that are very clear and very easy to understand, such as 2 Thessalonians, you know. And then once we know, okay, those are the things we see about him, then we can go to other passages such as Revelation chapter 13 where uh, John talks about the beast. You know, it's an interesting chapter. A beast that comes from the sea and then a beast that comes from the land. And one beast dies and then it's like he becomes resurrected and comes back to life and then it's like in, in this second beast. So it's a very interesting chapter. But the reason we don't start with Revelation is because there's a lot of imagery in there. Like, as you can see, look at that. Look at the image. <laughs> it's not that clear what exactly is this beast. It's got all these heads and all these crowns and it's got legs like a, a bear and it looks like a leopard and it's all like, wow, and, and scary. But you can go to 2 Thessalonians and you can see a lot of that very clearly, whereas... In Revelation, especially chapter 13, which talks about the Antichrist, he's known as the beast. Now, the reason we go there next, after we go to 2 Thessalonians, is because we see things about the Antichrist in, Thess in Thess 2 Thessalonians, such as his, his authority, worldwide authority, worldwide influence, that is worshipped by people all over the world, that he speaks blasphemies, that he has power to make war, that he operates with great signs and wonders, in other words, false miracles. He has supernatural ability and that he deceives the earth, 
and he sets up an image of himself to be worshipped. Now, all these things are spoken of in Revelation chapter 13 about the beast, and they correspond, like you can tick them off in 2 Thessalonians. Ah, he mentions that in 2 Thessalonians. Ah, he mentions that in Revelation. Mentions that in 2 Thessalonians. Ah, he mentions that in Revelation about the beast. So the correspondence of these two identities, the beast and the man of lawlessness, are so like matching, it it is really almost impossible to say that they're not the same person. Although one is is, uh, described in in uh, sort of pictorial and, and you know, imagery type things with a lot of different things around it in Revelation 13, whereas in 2 Thessalonians it's just very clear. So I'm just saying we can take what we see in, Revela- in Thessalonians and add to it the things we see in Revelation. Rather than going back the other way, starting with Re- Revelation, we start with what's clear and then we add to it when we see correspondence. Okay? I think that's reasonable, the way to go. And then the other supporting text uh, you'll find in Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 11 and a little bit in 12. Okay, so there, there are these, so that's interesting. There's actually Old Testament in Daniel that also talks about this fourth king that he talks about. And when Daniel talks about him, he talks about, you know, there'll be these three great kings or kingdoms and then a fourth kingdom. And why that is interesting to us and why it corresponds is because. When he mentions his fourth kingdom, he says it'll be different to every other kingdom that's ever been in the world, more powerful, bigger than any other kingdom, and that God will destroy it when he comes. Okay, so again, ah, that's interesting because Jesus says he'll destroy the Antichrist when he comes. So again, there's correspondence. When you see that in Daniel, which is again, a lot of it's, you know, pictorial and all that, so it's... When you see those correspondence and then that when, when God destroys him, it'll be an everlasting kingdom and the saints will be rewarded and so on. And you think, ah, well, that matches exactly what's said in 2 Thessalonians about Jesus coming to end, you know, this, this Antichrist. So that's how the best way to read Old Testament prophecy. When it matches something in the New Testament, it's very clear. Wow, we've got a really good extra bit of information. One John also talks about many antichrists. This means that there are many false teachers and powerful influences who have persecuted the church over the years and who have come and gone and who come in the same spirit as the antichrist. In other words, the spirit of the antichrist is he wants to destroy the work of God. That's basically it. And so there are many little antichrists who have been false teachers, false prophets, who again, or, or like Nero, you know, and others who just kill Christians. Over the years, over the centuries, over the 2,000 years, there's been many little antichrists coming in the same spirit as the big one that will come and have done damage to the church. They've, they've come and gone, but they're not the actual man of lawlessness. He's still to come. All right, so let's look at the the points now. The first big point is that Jesus will not return until the rebellion and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So to to do with the timing, when is it going to happen? When will this person emerge and become prominent and world influencer? He'll be coming 
just prior, when I mean just prior, there is some indication it could be three and a half years, just prior to Jesus' return, his ultimate return, to, to judge and to set up a new kingdom on heaven and earth. So when he, is he coming? He's coming just before Jesus comes. That's basically the answer. <laughs> Will he come in our generation? I don't know. Will he come in the next hundred years? I don't know. There are some indications to do with timing that might um, be uh, influential in the sense of, I guess the biggest one is Israel becoming a nation again in 1948, like that whole journey of the Israelites and the Jews coming back. And um, there, there are passages in the Old Testament that do talk about, I will bring my people back, I will bring Israel back together, you know, whether that's coming back from their exile, and I, I think that was probably a part of it, or whether it's more of an indication of in the end, before Jesus comes, I will gather my people back. You know, So there are some indications that maybe we are living in, in the end of the end times right now, in the sense that it could happen you know, during our lifetime, let's just say that. And I think for me personally... Um, Although wars and rumours of wars have always occurred and famines and all that, as Jesus said, they'll always occur. So I don't think we can look at those things as being indications of we're right in the last times because it's always happened. But to, for me personally, I think the, the existence of nuclear weapons, as I've said before, to me personally is a strong indicator that perhaps we are getting close to the end of the end. That, that's just humanly speaking. I think that's, to me, a big indicator. Um, anyway. So, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So don't be, you know, don't give in to false teaching that that day has already come. Until, it won't come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Jesus is going to kill him, destroy him. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. So what is the rebellion? Okay, well, it could be what 1 Timothy 4.1 refers to. He, he says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That could be, we don't know whether he's talking there about a really big, you know, turning away or just the general, you know, falling away that, that happens. You know, it's happened all throughout church history. But the rebellion, the, the language that Paul's using in 2 Thessalonians, that the rebellion will happen first, seems to indicate that it's a lot more than just Christians, you know, backsliding and, and, and the Western church declining like we know it is, right? So what we've got to keep in mind as Westerners is that whilst we might hear and see perhaps the church over the years declining in attendance. Uh, and that's true in some ways. It's, it's not true in other ways. Other churches have grown massively. There are many churches that have declined, but others have stayed the same or grown. And particularly in Africa, in Asia, in South America, churches boomed. And China and all these you know, other places. It hasn't declined like we think the church has declined in the West. It's booming. So when we think, oh, the church is declining, that's the rebellion. Well, no, not really. So it's hard for us to... But what, when he mentions the rebellion, it seems to indicate 
it will be an identifiable and dramatic large scale and perhaps public repudiation of the Christian faith that was once very much upheld. Much more than just a decline in the church attendance in the West. The fact that the Antichrist is revealed simultaneously to the rebellion, he mentions it the same, rebellion will happen and the Antichrist will be revealed. The fact that those two things sort of seem to be blended together might suggest that the Antichrist himself has led a rebellion or a public confession that the church has misplaced their allegiance to Jesus 2,000 years ago, that we all got it wrong, you know. The Antichrist is the real saviour of the world and maybe he, he's, he's going to be so powerful and his miracles, you know, false miracles will be so influential that people will go, well, yeah, he's right here now, you know, stopping wars, stopping disease, whatever the miracles he's going to do, they're going to be so influential and so convincing to people that people will go, yeah, Jesus, well, he come and gone and he's not around anymore to help anyone, but this guy, he's here. Look at him helping everybody and stopping everyone. He's uniting the whole world. This one is the real one. So that could be the type of effect that he has so that then, you know, the, the, the sort of weak Christians and people who aren't really in the faith go, oh, yeah, we were all wrong about Jesus, but this guy's the real one. So then there'll be this massive rebellion against the church. That's how I'm trying to explain it, how it might happen. The Antichrist himself might have a big part in why many, many people turn away from the Christian faith because they think he's the real one, not Jesus. Does that make sense? That's how it could work because he's going to be here at the same time. But it's, it's going to be something much bigger than just a bit of a falling away. And John Piper, if you know John Piper, great Christian leader, this is what he says about this, this falling away. He says, Paul is referring to something climactic, something decisive and epoch-making, something recognisable as utterly sweeping and catastrophic in the church. Before the second coming, there will be a rebellion against God, against Christ and his people from inside and outside the church. All nations hating the church from outside Love growing cold from inside. Okay? So what John Piper is picking up there is that this isn't just you know, a lack of church attendance. This is something huge, the rebellion. Okay? It's different from anything else we've ever seen. Anyway, we don't have a lot of information about it. We can only sort of guess. right? But it seems to indicate it's something worldwide and massive for the church. The rebellion. And it seems to fall in line with what Jesus says in Matthew 24 as well. So the second point. Sorry, that was John Piper there. Second point that he, the Antichrist, will be the ultimate false god. And I find this interesting. It says it in verse 4. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God. Or is worshipped. So did you get that? He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God. And everything that is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. So it sounds very much more than just influencing Christians. So everything that is worshipped. So that's like 
um, Buddhists, Hindus, Islam, you know, it's, it's all religions that he, he, he is like saying, oh, you've all, you know, sort of been following these false gods or gods and that's okay because they've just been pointing to me. I'm actually the one you've really been worshipping all those years. Because he, he, he sets himself up over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that indicates bigger than just Christian. And here's something from Revelation. Again, here's the correspondence factor, the, the thing that it links it in. Revelation 14, talking about the beast, men, will, men worshipped the beast. In verse 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship, all inhabitants, that's a lot, will worship the beast. And he ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast. That's the one, you know, that's the one from the sea and one from the land. So I'm just pointing out that Revelation 13 also mentions this worship factor, that he'll, he'll have a religious significance. Okay? Not just a political leader, a religious leader as well, where he has no qualms in being worshipped. Now, Daniel in chapter 11, uh, Daniel uh, mentions um, you know, a figure that was to come that would be setting himself up in the temple and be worshipped, right? Now, it's highly likely what Daniel was referring to there was a, a, uh, a Greek leader called Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, this was an actual historical figure who, was, who set himself up as God in the temple in Jerusalem and the Maccabees, who were a, a, a group of godly uh, warriors, Jewish warriors, who, who rose up during... This is in, in between the Old and New Testament. During those times... The Maccabees rose up and rebelled against this um, Seleucid uh, empire. Now, he was a, a Greek general, Seleucid, and he was the leader of this empire that stretched right out through um, the Middle East and all the way through Persia and all the way to Afghanistan. It was a massive kingdom. And he was so proud that he set himself up and literally did this, right, to be worshipped. Now, Daniel talks about that in chapter 11. So it's possible that the way this works is that Antiochus Epiphanes um, set himself up to be worshipped, but he was just like a forerunner of the Antichrist. So in the same way that Antiochus Epiphanes set himself up to be worshipped, so too will the Antichrist, but in a much bigger worldwide way. Whereas some people look at it and go, no, that's all Daniel was talking about. He was just talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But it seems to indicate that he's, Daniel's actually talking about a bigger figure who will be destroyed when Jesus returns, when, when the, the, the kingdom uh, of God uh, comes to this earth. So Daniel seems to have these other things in there that indicate, no, it's bigger than just something locally happening by a Greek general. It's something much bigger. So sit in the temple. He will, oppose himself, uh, he will oppose and exalt himself over everything he's called God or his worship. So it indicates taking the leadership over every religion around the world. And he sets himself up in God's temple. That's odd. Proclaiming himself to be God. Now, the, the, the thing that's difficult for us to understand there is a temple has no real 
significance at all in the new covenant. <laughs> you know, we as Christians don't need a temple. You know, a, a physical, literal place like a temple where sacrifices were made to cleanse us from sin and where priests offered sacrifice on behalf. And, you know, the, the whole ritual of feasts throughout the year, the centre of worship. We don't need that, so Jesus replaced that. In fact, Jesus became the temple, the meeting place of man and God. Jesus became that. He became the sacrifice. He became the high priest. He did away with the temple. So it's difficult for us as Christians to think, what does he mean that the Antichrist, you know, sets himself in, in the temple of God? It's hard because we don't need a temple. So the only possibilities here is... It could be just imagery that he's talking about. In other words, that he's just setting himself up to be worshipped and he's sort of using the image of a temple, but not a physical one. Or maybe, maybe the Jews will rebuild, you know, the temple properly. Maybe. We just don't know. It could be that that's what he's referring to here, that there, there, maybe there is a literal place one day of worldwide, that this is the worldwide temple that God sits in it for the whole world. And the Antichrist goes, well, that's where I sit because I'm God and I'm going to be worshipped. So it could be that in the future, someone, someone, some group or the, just the worldwide religion, whatever it's called, says we need a big temple. It could be that. So I'm just saying it could be because these things aren't clear. He does mention a temple. Okay. Now, the thing that I find interesting about um, this whole he'll be the ultimate false god is that people who are agnostic or atheists, when you talk to them about God, they, they always end up coming back to this. Well, if Jesus is real, where is he? You're saying you believe in God. Where is he? I can't see him. I can't touch him, right? That's what they end up coming back to. And oh, if I could see him, I'd believe him. And, but here is going to be someone who's saying, all oh, you atheists, you've said, oh yeah, if God was real, why isn't he here? Well, I'm here. Here I am. And look at me, I can do miracles. So even people who have um, you know, thrown out the concept of God, the idea of God, they will be drawn into this because they've said to themselves, if only I could see God, I'd believe him. And here he is, doing miracles, doing everything God does, sorting out problems in the world. He's not going to be like, you know, like the devil with red, red horns and an ugly pig face and all that. He's going to be like the image at the start, wearing a suit. Looking pretty cool, looking pretty good. So, you know... This is the way it could perhaps go, that even people who've never believed in God will be sucked into it, and it seems to be that big because he's so convincing. Now, I find interesting that the, this relationship between the Antichrist and Satan himself, that Satan himself has empowered in, in, and in some way you know, taken over this, this person, this man who's called the man of lawlessness. There's something much bigger than, than just a normal person going on here. Now, what I find interesting is when we see descriptions of the devil in the Bible, 
He has always wanted this to be worshipped. You know, he's always wanted adoration. He's always wanted to take the place of God for human beings. Look at what it says in Isaiah. This, I do believe, is a description of Satan's fall. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star. Like he was an angel, right? Son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, above the other angels. This is Satan. He's always wanted that ultimate place and could never have it. I will, I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. All right. And, you know, interestingly, I think also, when Jesus was tempted, what was the final temptation? Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. He says, all this I'll give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. That was the third test, the final test, which revealed the ultimate mission or ultimate aim of the devil himself. Jesus was an offence to the devil because he was the son of God, he was God on earth, and the devil wanted what he had. Bow down and worship me. I want to put myself above you, Jesus. I am God. That's what Satan has always wanted. And here in the Antichrist, he will have it. He'll have his represented representation on it. In other words, you could think he'll have his son on earth doing his will, being worshipped. It's what Satan's always wanted. It's very clear. But Jesus is God with us. He proved this by his miracles, by his divine love, his claims to forgive, his resurrection and his redeeming work on the cross. There is only one saviour. There is only one God with us and it's Jesus. And he proved it. But Satan hated it. And the pushing forward of this Antichrist figure, it is like his son coming and receiving everything the devil's always wanted with worldwide worship. It's something freaky, isn't it, when you think about it? It's just mind-boggling. Something is holding him back. Verses 6 and 7. And now you know what is holding him back. So it indicates Paul has already explained to them what this holding him back is. Because now you know what is holding him back. So he's already explained it to them. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. We don't know exactly what is holding the man of lawlessness back. It's, it's, he's been held back for at least 2,000 years because that's when Paul was first saying this. It could be a reference to the Holy Spirit. And I've heard one preacher, one good preacher from Sydney Anglican, so they're pretty good, saying that it's Michael the Archangel who's holding him back. It could be the Roman Empire back in those days. It could be the preaching of the gospel to all the nations, but it doesn't seem to mean like someone. That's just a, that's, that's, that's an experience, preaching the gospel everywhere. It's not a thing, so it's a bit hard. 
But in the end, we can speculate about all sorts of things. We don't have the detail. But in the end, I just nut that out in my head by saying, well, I know that God is sovereign, that nothing happens in this world without God allowing it to. So I just think it's probably the Holy Spirit who's you know, prevented the man of lawlessness coming when, when it, like he's probably just wanted to come from a long time ago. But uh, it's the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it's God who decides what happens in this world. So I have no problem in saying, well, I don't really know exactly what he was talking about, but I know God is in control of everything. So it's probably the Holy Spirit who's holding him back to be revealed at the proper time. If you want an image of what this is, well, it is like that the Antichrist is like a mad dog on a chain at the moment. We've got one of those just up the road from us. Big black dog. It's big black and it's horrible. It's very frightening. And it lives under this house in a cage. It's very sad. And they let it out on a chain every now and again. Then it just sits there in the heat. It's horrible. And we've only heard stories of when this black dog has got off the lead. And it's not pretty. The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is like that dog. Barking and scaring people with accusations and temptations. And in a sense, he's been held back from doing his evil work, which you'd want to do, world domination, because God graciously has allowed the gospel era to, to be so that the gospel can go to all nations and so that the church can flourish and so that God's people can be gathered and so that many, many can come into the kingdom and be saved. So, that, you know, this, this antichrist, Satan... He's been held back, he wants to get out there, he wants to do his evil stuff, but God said, no, you're not coming out yet until the proper time. And in that time, the church has flourished. But one day, the chain will be broken. And that's what we're talking about here. That black dog will be off the lead and he'll be roaming around doing his evil deeds, like seriously. And that's what we're talking about when he comes. So something's holding him back. It's like that big black chain, big chain on him. <laughs> something's holding him back and eventually he'll be released. <laughs> Fourth, the secret power of lawlessness is already here. So 2 Thessalonians says that. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds him back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. Okay, that's what I... And this is similar to what it says in 1 John. See that? Dear children, this is the last hour, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Who is a liar is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So there's already little Antichrist in the sense of false prophets in the world always has been destructive people trying to destroy the church but the big one is still to come okay so this is i guess the big one he will come with supernatural powers and evil to deceive the world the man of evil will come by the power of satan there we go the power of satan he will have great power 
and will do many different false miracles, signs and wonders. He will use every kind of evil to trick those who are lost and they will die because they refuse to love the truth. So Paul doesn't tell us for how long the man of lawlessness will be influential in the world, but there is indications in Revelation again, mystically talking about 42 months. Okay, 42 months, which is three and a half years. Again, because of the way Revelation is, we just don't know, is that the actual number of months or is that more of a, a picture? We don't know. But it, seem, it could very well be exactly literally three and a half years that he deceives the world with supernatural powers. This is where the uniqueness of the Antichrist really comes out, that he won't just be a, a person. He'll be a person who has uh, supernatural power, un, unheard of ever, except in Jesus himself. He'll have, be working in accordance with the working of Satan. There'll be counterfeit miracles, so they'll look like real miracles. You know, counterfeit in the sense that God is not glorified. Okay, so if someone with a broken arm, you know, like, here's a miracle, right? A man's arm's like this, hanging off, being broken in the middle. And someone comes up and goes, I heal you. And suddenly that arm is completely healed. That's a miracle. But it's a counterfeit miracle because it's not done in the name of Jesus and for God's glory. So there will be miracles. There will be amazing things that happen. But they'll be counterfeit. They're not from the proper source. Signs and wonders. He says every sort of evil. You can imagine it. Every sort of evil he'll come with. That's a lot. And he'll spread a powerful delusion that people will believe. They'll believe a lie. And there'll be religious and divine worship. Revelation 13 adds some extra things that this doesn't say. That the beast is given power to make war against the saints and even to conquer them. Revelation 13 says in verse 7, given authority over every tribe and people, language and nations. Worldwide domination. And he'll cause everyone, this is an extra thing, which again we don't quite know, is it literal or is it symbolic? We don't quite know. He'll cause everyone to have a mark on their right hand and their forehead, and no one can buy and sell unless they had that mark. Now it's very clear, Revelation 13 talks about the beast, and these are things attributed to the beast. It's very clear that the beast is the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. So what is the mark on the hand and the forehead? Is it a literal one? Is it actual stamp? You know, you can't buy and sell. It could be. We have the technology through microchips and so forth. We do. We scan stuff all the time. So again, like indicators in the world that these things, we might be close to that time, that technology that exists to actually be able to do that uh, through microchips and everything and scanners never existed hundreds of years ago, but it does today. So the ability to actually control a worldwide population through this sort of stuff is here. And it's getting worse. So it's not too far-fetched. It might have been far-fetched to think years ago, you know, 200 years ago, that someone could have worldwide domination. But not now. With the internet, with, you know, message going around the world by one person, everyone looking. I mean, it's very possible 
in today's technology that these things could take place. Even the whole buying and selling stuff with a mark. Very possible. I know it sounds far-fetched. It sounds like stuff you know you read in a movie. But it's actually there. And the good news is Jesus will destroy him at his coming. That's the best thing. <laughs> he'll be revealed, he'll be destroyed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy at the splendour of his coming. Again, that's what links this in very, very clearly with 1 Thessalonians. The way Jesus is going to come back it is in the clouds as we sung. It's a trumpet call of God. It's in the clouds. It's very dramatic, very visual, very worldwide. And again, he says, he will destroy him at the splendour of his coming. So that links it. Revelation 17 also talks about destroying him, the triumphal you know, appearance of Jesus and you know, ending. And Daniel 7 also talks about this fourth beast kingdom being destroyed. Okay. In summary... The timing of the Antichrist prior to Jesus' return. There'll be an overlap. The worship of the Antichrist, it will be, he'll proclaim himself to be God to the whole world and the whole world will believe him. That is powerful influence, unseen of ever before. The restraint, there's something holding him back, which I think is probably the Holy Spirit until God's timing. There are many smaller ones at work, always have been, the power of the Antichrist, it will be so obvious, Jesus destroy him at, at his coming. And you know, I think what the big takeaway for us is, at the end of the passage, you just talk about those who will be deceived who don't love the truth. That, that's the big thing. What can we do about it? What, if we do live during this time, we can uphold to the truth of God's word. Okay? That is our salvation. That is the thing we can hold on to. If we get caught up in signs and wonders, if we're the type of people who say, oh, if there's a miracle, it must be from God, we'll be deceived. If that's the bottom line of what's real and what's not real as a Christian, which there are some churches who do think like that, the only thing that's actually real is a miracle I see in front of me, you know, they, they, they have that as their ultimate thing, you know, they possibly could be deceived. Because this false God, this Antichrist, can do things like that. Whereas those who hold to the truth of God's word go, hey, no, the Bible says unless he's giving glory to Jesus, unless he's you know, recognising Jesus is God's son, all the things and salvation is only through Jesus, the truth of the gospel, only one way to be right with God, only one sacrifice for sin, it's through Jesus. unless we hold to that truth, as the number one thing, then, yeah, it's possible for Christians to be deceived. So the big thing, and even like you see it today in our world, the truth of what is biblical marriage. You can see the drift even, it started a long time ago, but even that's another example of how it, it sort of weeds out people who don't hold to the truth of God's word. This, the idea, you know, what our society has done with marriage with allowing same-sex marriage, okay, that it's clearly in conflict with the Bible, with God's standard. You know, 
our society has said that this is right. The Bible says, no, this is right and that's wrong. And there are some Christians who've gone, well, actually, no, I think that's okay. In spite of the fact that the Bible clearly says it's not okay, they have started to just move away from the truth of God's word because they don't want to be in conflict with our society. They don't want to look out of step with our culture. Don't want to look uncool, whatever their reason, but it's a moving away from the truth. And there's many, many other examples. But that's an example of how it starts. It's, the Bible is very clear on the big issues of faith. Marriage is one of those ones. And some people just choose not to believe the truth. And that same attitude is what's going to potentially bring a lot of people unstuck when this Antichrist figure comes. And that's, they believe a lie. They're deceived because they don't hold and love the truth. Yeah. That's the big takeaway. Hold on to the truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have planned in your divine will. Your Father has set out the course of history with the divine plan and this is part of it that before you come to set up your perfect kingdom there will be a massive rebellion and massive um, false Christ who comes it's like a last ditch effort to try to persuade people to worship him like Satan's always wanted it'll be a final fling like a boxer in a ring at the end of the 15th round in the last minute of the flinging his punches wildly to try to get a knockout blow. But Jesus will prevail. Jesus will prevail and destroy him and God's perfect plan will be enacted. We look forward to that day, Lord, when we can declare you as our Lord and Saviour and the ultimate defeater of all that's evil. Amen.